I've been trying to write this episode for a very long time. Every time I sit down to take the ideas from my mind and wrestle them into words, I fail miserably. In what I consider an awful curse of irony, this episode I'm trying to create is about creativity. Currently, I'm trying again, and just like all the previous attempts, I sit down at my typewriter, slowly collapsing into despair by my complete inability to rattle the ideas onto paper. The silence is deafening, as are the screams of the ideas in my mind as they resist all attempts at cooperation. <sighs> to save myself, I think I better step away from this disaster. I don't walk with headphones on anymore. I thought I'd get bored without music or podcasts to keep my mind on a leash, but actually I really enjoy the silence. With something as monotonous as walking, there is nothing particular for me to direct my focus towards. With my mind decoupled from my management, it wanders as it pleases, going all sorts of places I would never expect. I've been really interested in Vincent van Gogh as of late. I've read this whole book about his life from birth to disastrous death. If you're interested, the book is called Van Gogh, The Life. It is incredibly interesting to look at his paintings now, knowing the context in which they were made, not only the scenes which he was trying to paint and what they looked like and why he did it, but also the context in which it was painted in his life as a whole. His most famous piece is The Starry Night, I think. I really love the way that Vincent layers his paint on so vehemently thick. You can see the streaks of paint left behind by individual brushstrokes, and you can really feel the forceful passion in which he painted. That was something people noticed about Vincent all throughout his life, usually with deprecation. How furiously fast he painted, and the thick cloud of passion that engulfed him as he worked. They said he didn't work carefully enough. Almost everything Vincent painted has this hue of extreme vigour. It comes in varying degrees. Even scenes which one would expect to be calm and peaceful have a breeze of passion blowing around them. In a single of Vincent's paintings you can simultaneously be whisked away into a quiet trance and paralysed by the chaotic undercurrents. Starry Night is a perfect embodiment of this. You can sit there in a magical trance, watching the light scattering and swirling through the universe, but you can also feel the fireworks of energy and the whirlpools of passion. If you aren't careful, you'll be sucked in and drowned. 
all this peace and passion and Vincent said he was painting just purely by feeling and instinct. His hand guided the brush completely detached from his consciousness. The paint was wandering onto the canvas as it pleased. The decoupled mind is much the same, I find. When I'm not consciously guiding my thoughts, as if by magic, just like Vincent's paint, the ideas begin to just wander in. Often the origin of an idea is completely unknown to me, for it has simply invited itself in without appointment. And if this idea is a particularly good one, I hastily pour it a cup of coffee, make it feel welcome, and record it in my notebook without any further questions. This sort of activity is not even remotely unique to my mind. In unguided minds all around the world, there are ideas appearing with grand entrances, despite having made no appointment beforehand. Creative people are constantly telling us that they can't force inspiration, that the light just appears when they aren't actively seeking it, that if they let their mind just wander, the idea pops in. What we can conclude from this, then, is that creativity is not a conscious, active process, but an unconscious one. The disassociative state allows for the stream of unconscious creativity to flow uninterrupted. This state is so beautifully peaceful and calming, the current is smooth, not stormy. Upon looking closer at the disassociative state that comes with doing monotonous tasks like walking or showering or brushing your teeth, neurologists have found that it is not a peaceful one at all. When the mind is in this decoupled state, various parts of the brain are allowed to converse with each other in a free and uncensored fashion. Your mind feels calm, but your brain is utter chaos. So, like Vincent's Starry Night, the piece is just an illusion. The disassociated mind scatters ideas vigorously, connecting thoughts and experiences like a whirlpool of vehement paint. This is the beauty of allowing your mind to be decoupled for a while. Don't strive to entertain it. Let it go and feel it cascade into creative fireworks. I read about this test the other day. I'm going to give you 60 seconds to think of as many uses as you possibly can for a brick. So think of as many different, unique ways you could use a brick. Alright, time starts now. Can I get a latte over ice and a cheese scone to here, please? Thank you.
Here are the answers given by a student named Poole from a top British high school. To use in smash and grab raids, to help hold a house together, to use in a game of Russian roulette, to hold a duvet down on a bed by tying a brick to each corner, and to smash empty Coca-Cola bottles. Alright, with some inspiration from Paul's answers, I'm going to give you another 60 seconds to think of as many uses as you can for a blanket. Time starts now. Cool, thank you very much. Here are the answers from Paul again. To use on a bed, to make a tent, to make smoke signals, as a sail for a boat, as a sled, as a substitute for a towel, as a target for shooting practice, as a thing to catch people from jumping out of burning buildings. Now here are the answers from a student named Florence who is considered a child prodigy with one of the highest IQs in his school. Uses for a brick are to build things or for throwing. The uses for a blanket are for keeping warm, smothering a fire, making a hammock, and making a stretcher. The second student, Florence, has a much higher IQ than Paul does, which generally equates to him being accepted as smarter. Yet, in this test, we find that Florence is completely unable to think up any uses for these objects beyond the most obvious uses for them, while Paul has a mind that scatters from Russian roulette to saving people from burning buildings. And that is because this test is assessing something fundamentally different to that which general intelligence tests are, and that is creativity. Intelligence tests like IQ tests are also called convergence tests. They test logical reasoning by providing a problem and then asking you to converge on the single correct answer. The test that Paul, Florence and yourself just did is the opposite, a divergence test where you are given a prompt which you must diverge away from with new and unique answers. It was testing your creative ability. After the First World War, a young psychology professor at Stanford University named Lewis Terman sorted through and tested 250,000 primary and high school students to find what he considered to be the best and brightest. Terman used his own invention, the IQ test, to measure their brilliance. He ended up with a group of about 1,500 children who he considered geniuses. Terman's group became known as the Termites. Terman thought his Termites would be the next wave of world-renowned scientists, writers, politicians, and artists. He claimed there was nothing more important about an individual than their IQ, except perhaps their morals. 
but consider Florence, the child prodigy from earlier with the extremely high IQ and his answers to the divergence test. This doesn't seem like the type of person to be making breakthrough discoveries in science or writing Oscar winning films, and indeed, that's because it generally isn't. The termites' lives turned out completely mediocre by almost every standard. The majority had careers that were simply only described as ordinary. There was not a single Nobel Prize winner amongst the carefully selected group of over a thousand apparent geniuses. It was eventually shown that if Terman had simply selected a group at random from the same kind of living conditions as the termites without considering IQ at all, he would have ended up with a group doing practically just as well as his geniuses. Terman's geniuses weren't genius at all. It turns out that there is a hell of a lot more to being successful than just IQ. That isn't to say that IQ isn't important, but it only is to a certain degree. Being on the cutting edge of almost anything requires a lot more than being able to simply converge on a single correct answer in a logic puzzle. It also requires having a mind of cascading ideas that swirl from using a brick to hold down a duvet to using a blanket to save people from burning buildings. As interesting as I find this topic, I do think all this talk about divergent ideas and such is missing a huge element about what true creativity really is. It will never transfer to a test of any kind, I don't believe, and that simply is passion. There is a fundamental difference between just having an idea and having a feeling surge through your veins, overwhelming you entirely. Of all people, Vincent van Gogh knew this feeling all too well. Dangerously well, in fact. Throughout Vincent's life, he would suffer from mental blitzes, eerily similar to the chaos of the starry night. Nerve storms, they were called. Explosions of neurotic fireworks that would be triggered by a few epileptic neurons in the brain. The storms took their heaviest toll on the most sensitive areas of the brain, shaking the foundations of Vincent's identity and consciousness. The brain could weather these bombardments, but it could never fully recover. Each storm made the brain more vulnerable for the next. These chaotic bombardments would be followed by periods of extreme passivity. Vincent would enter a haze, showing little interest in the outside world. Eventually, this would reverse to extreme excitement. He would wane between the calm infinity of the starry night and the chaotic whirlpools of his thick paint. Intense feelings and vivid emotions would surge through him. These electrical storms brought intense passion to Vincent's mind, boring ideas deep into his consciousness that became obsessions over all else. Thankfully, the majority of us are not haunted by the same mental blitzes as Vincent was, but there is a part of his vehement passion that I think resonates with a lot of us. 
Vincent was held captive by many different obsessions throughout his life. Many were recurring, leaving only to haunt him later in the wreckage of another mental storm. One of them was the image of the sower, a peasant in a bare field sowing seeds beneath the sun. He tried and tried to set it aside, barely daring to think about it because he was utterly terrified of it. He wanted to attack the idea and make a painting of the sower. It's what he wanted to do so desperately, but he feared he lacked the vigor to carry it through to creation. Another of Vincent's obsessions was martyrdom. Each time a mental storm reduced him to the void, Vincent would seek a way to resurrect himself. I have the thing in my head, he wrote. A starry night, the figure of Christ all in blue, all the strongest blues. But he failed miserably. He took a knife and in his own words, mercilessly destroyed the canvas. He could not paint these obsessions, these ideas. He did not dare to. These divine ideas are not destined for the mortal realm. He would not dare to paint it, he said. It was too beautiful. idea is a perfect thing. It is something that comes from the unconscious, fully at its own accord. You hold it in your brain, in your heart, in your veins. It becomes a part of you. To take such an idea from within you and attempt to create it is utterly terrifying. You dwell on your ability as an artist. It will never be right. It is impossible not to bruise and injure the idea as you wrestle it into existence. The mark of the artist is to feel that the idea is too beautiful to dare to damage, but to go through the agony of doing it anyway.